Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about raising your rates. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this was mentioned briefly on, I think it was episode 57 with Paul Jarvis. He talked about how over the years when he's a web developer, web designer, every time he raised his rates, nobody even mentioned it. Nobody blinked. He just kept raising them. And <laughs> he doesn't really do client work anymore, but, uh, you know, he moved on to other things, products and courses and that kind of stuff. But uh, it, it raises the point. I don't think it's something we've talked about at all, or at least in a long time. So I thought that would make a, an interesting conversation for today. Yeah, because what I loved that he said is, you know, keep raising your rates until there's a drop off, you know, until people start saying no. And I don't think that's a natural thing we think of. Right. I mean, it's super normal in the sort of big companies, especially when they sell products and consumer packaged goods, those, that sort of thing. And that that is the what the term price point is for. A lot of people will use the term price point as almost like a verbal tick when they really mean price. But it's a specific kind of calculus where you can raise your prices for a thing. And as you do that, it's it wouldn't be unusual for sales to drop off, mm -hmm. but your costs are going down because mm -hmm. you're, you know, or your costs can be fluctuating. It depends because you might be getting um, bulk discounts and that sort of thing. If we're talking about products, physical products. So you get this weird thing where you can raise the price, sell fewer for more money, make as much revenue, but your costs might go up. So you're kind of like turning these knobs, trying to increase your profits uh, by getting these different, you know, getting the gross sales versus the price point versus your cost in alignment so that you can find this price point that is the most profitable. And uh, it it's always reminds me of the um, old joke. I think I heard it first from Michael Port. He said, I told my barber he should double his rates. And he, the barber said, double my rates, I'd lose half my clients. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like a perfect example of yeah. it for a, for a service provider, especially a solo service provider. There can be a fairly small change in the cost it takes to deliver a given service. So you don't have that as much of that variable to worry about like you would with if you said, for example, made iPhones or made uh, laundry detergent. Mm hmm. Because the more you sell, the cheaper it is to buy from your suppliers and it, it gets really complicated. But for folks like us, it's actually not that complicated because by and large, we're not getting bulk discounts on anything. We don't have like a supply chain or something like that. Maybe if you're selling physical books, uh, you might get a little bit of a discount if you order a thousand versus a hundred, but uh, it doesn't really affect us as much. So there's very little downside to, for example, in a given situation, if you're getting too much business to handle it, a lot of people will think, oh, I need to hire employees. And I'm like, no, just increase your prices. You're, you're not charging enough. If you charged more, in other words, you found, you've tapped into a market that values your services way more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be incumbent on you to increase your prices to control the demand. So you would you would sort of dial down the demand by increasing your prices. So what you'd end up with is probably projects. It depends on what you do, but let's say you do projects 
you'll probably end up with a similar amount of work, aka your cost, uh, much higher price than you would normally charge, maybe 65% more, maybe 100% more, 150% more, whatever it is. Therefore, you're way more profitable on that particular project. You're essentially making as much as two projects, maybe. And that gives you a lot of free time to work on your business by coming up with new insights, polishing uh, other products, um, creating new products, getting better at uh, delivering your ideas, all these other things that you can do to make your, your business better and to spread your big idea far and wide. But I find that people have a really hard time doing something that sounds so simple. Raise your rates. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't do that. Well, and there's this weird thing that can even happen in, in our world that maybe doesn't happen in products, which is sometimes when you raise your price, you actually, like for say a training program, something that's a productized service, you can actually get more people buying it. Seriously, I mean, it's happened to me. Has it happened to you too? Oh, absolutely. Right. Because the price price is a perhaps the most powerful marketing signal. So it can be the case that if you increase the price, you're sending the message that it's more valuable than similar things or alternatives that people might be considering that are that are appear cheap by comparison. A lot of people do not want to buy the cheapest thing. A lot of people don't want to buy the most expensive thing. I would say the bulk of people, the bell curve of people want to buy something that seems pretty good. Good bang for the buck. You know, that's the, the thought process. Uh, but there is a slice of the market, and Apple for a long time targeted this slice of the market, where they just said, nope, we don't want the most customers. We want the richest customers. We want to, we want to serve the luxury end of the market for computers and then audio players and then smartphones. And we'll be so profitable at that level that we'll become the richest company in the world or in the U.S. or whatever it is by serving way fewer, way, way, way fewer customers. I mean, like Android market share is dramatically higher than iOS, for example. But iOS has, is, has all the uh, biggest wallets, if you will. Pricing is obviously a very big deal. I talk about it all the time. It has all sorts of, all sorts of components to it. It's crazy. So it's just the hugest topic ever. I love it. So the, the thing to talk about today, though, is just taking whatever we've been using the word rates. I, I don't love that word um, because it sort of points to hourly rate or day rate. I, I like the word price. You know, what's the price for this thing? Give me a price for the project. But even if you do have day rate, you operate in sort of a day rate world or an hourly rate world, you can still raise them I actually find that much trickier. What's your history with, with hourly rates or day rates? Is that something that you guys did when you had the, um, or maybe you even do it now? I, I try not to do it now. <laughs> mm. um, but you don't want me to yell at you. <laughs> you think I'm stupid? No, I'm not going to admit in public <laughs> next to Jonathan Stark. No. What we, we did when I had multiple employees is everybody had a rate and when we would price a job, we would, you know, multiply how many hours we thought it would take by the rate of each person on the project, and we'd come up with a number. And then I would usually pad that number because consultants are historically bad at guesstimating prices. And then I worked on a, a not-to-exceed basis for that flat number. But we used the hourly rate in order to get there. There's all sorts of reasons why hourly rates 
are bad. There's a couple situations where they can really work. But the thing that I find really difficult with them is that you're, you're inviting your client to speculate about how you spend your time. And that's really irrelevant. What is relevant is the end result. So when I do uh, proposals, it's always a flat fee. And I try to link that to value. It isn't always directly because of what I do is it, it can be a, a little soft. That connection can be a little soft. But yeah, I always give them a flat number and they don't care about how much time it takes me. What they do care about is when it's going to be done. That's an important part of the process, but not how much time it's going to take. And in fact, let me guess, they would like it to be done sooner rather than later. Typically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody wants it done faster. Yeah, yeah. I just want to talk a little bit more about hourly, hourly rates before talking about prices. So rates can be very hard to raise because talking to a client early on, like it's almost the first question they tend to ask. It's like, oh, yeah, I understand that you do this thing that I think I need. Uh, what's your hourly rate? And if you give it to them before they understand, let's just say, what's unique about you or why you're better than somebody else or whatever it is, they take that and they use it as like like the only thing that matters in comparing you against your competitors or you against your colleagues or you against other people they're considering or the other alternatives. They see it as like this apples to apples comparison because usually in your marketing, folks who bill by the hour, usually in their marketing, don't project themselves in a way that's clear to their buyers exactly what the heck they do. Like they might understand the deliverable that comes out of freelancer Sue that makes videos, onboarding videos for your for for whatever you want. Or not even onboarding videos. That's more specific than most of them are. It's like, oh, freelancer Sue makes videos for for you. Okay. Um, it's hard for the client to have a conversation with someone who's kind of vague and just talks about their craft because the the buyer doesn't understand the craft. So they have nothing to talk about. If the person who makes the videos, let's just say, doesn't tie back what they do to something that the buyer understands, i.e. desirable business outcomes like uh, better conversions off free trials for the SaaS product or something, something that they can understand, something from their world, they don't have anything to go on. They end up thinking like, oh, $200 an hour, that sounds like a lot. And I'm like, compared to what? But okay. The answer is compared to other people who also do this who only charge $100 an hour. They end up getting this first impression, make a snap decision. Um, they think freelancer Sue at $200 an hour, well, she must be the best one because she's the most expensive, but I don't need the best one. I need. I just need a pretty good one. So they shop around. I just did this for, for uh, like uh, someone we're looking for to help around the house. I'm like, I have no idea what the going rate going rate is, right? I knew they all charged by the hour. No idea what the going rate is. I had a rough idea of what I wanted to spend per week. Uh, and then I sort of shopped around and lo and behold, people were divulging their hourly rates like crazy in this <laughs> Facebook group that I'm in. And I was like, oh, that's a lot cheaper than I thought it was going to be. I probably would have paid a lot more. And, and they were all basically offering the same hourly rate. So it boiled down to talking to a few of them and just picking based on some other factor because the hourly rates were all the same. If the hourly rates were all different, I probably would have used that as my primary decision-making process. So the point I'm making here is that if you are selling yourself based on an hourly rate and your marketing is soft, it's like not real, not real clear, then you're almost forcing your buyers to choose 
somebody based on your rate, which makes it really hard to increase it. You've failed to differentiate yourself in any other way. So if you, if you just double your hourly rate right now without any real strong differentiation between the alternatives or your competitors, no one, you're never going to close a deal. You're never going to do it. So you're sort of stuck. You know, if this episode's about raising your prices, if you, if you're just doing hourly estimates and billing by the hour, it's super hard to close deals if your hourly rate is significantly higher than other people who do what you do. Well, plus if you're already working for somebody, you know, let's say you're charging by, by the hour and it's $100 an hour and you realize you really should be charging 200 it's really tough to go to that same client and say, oh, guess what? Today I'm worth 100% more per hour. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Guess what? I'm giving myself a raise. <laughs> and you, yeah, you're going to pay it for me. Yeah. Mm. I, yeah, I didn't even think of that. I mean, that that doesn't exist in my world. Like having a, a long-term client that you are billing in arrears by the hour on a weekly, bi-weekly or monthly basis is, it doesn't exist in my world. Like that, that's really hard, obviously. I mean, we're laughing. It's so hard to be like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to start costing twice as much and, but not deliver any more value. I'm going to do the exact same thing, but now I'm going to capture more of the the value from the outcome. It's like, why don't think so? No. And everybody listening, I've talked to tons of people who, who face this and I'm like, you know, that's not going to fly. Right. And they're like, yeah. And so they, instead they just do these sort of cost of, you know, air quotes, cost of living increases. Maybe every few years they send out an email. It's like, I haven't raised my rates in five years. Uh, so this year I'm going to increase a little bit like 10%. It's like, why bother? 10%? Come on. So my advice to people who are in that, they're stuck in that trap and they can't do a significant like double their rates type of thing with existing clients is to try to transition them off of this like ongoing hourly thing. Look for something that you can quote as a project. So the next time something comes along that feels like it has a beginning, middle and an end and it's like a like maybe you're doing just ongoing support for some kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they're, they make some new decision or a competitor does something and they say, hey, we want you to do this cohesive initiative. So instead of just like putting out fires like you do every week, we're going to focus on doing this thing. It's going to have a beginning, a middle and end. It's probably going to take about three months. Maybe we're wrong and it'll take six or 16, <laughs> the case may be. That's just FYI. That's what's going to be coming. And then you can say to them, that's an opportunity for you to say to them, well, listen, what if I gave you a price for that whole thing since you're unsure of how long it's going to take and we don't really know? What if, you know, we could say, eh, I'll give you an estimate and maybe it'll be, it'll be my normal $100 an hour for as many hours as we think it's going to be. Or I can give you a quote, you know, that would be significantly higher, but I would stick to it. It's kind of like not to exceed, but you don't get penalized if you finish quickly. So they would have that option. So maybe it would be $10,000 estimate. It, we, I estimate that it'll be $10,000 worth of hours to do this project, or it'll be 18500 or 19000 and I'll stick to that price. And, and if, if I'm wrong about how long it's going to take, that's my problem, not yours. You'll never have to, you know. So now all of a sudden what you've done is created like a profit margin for yourself. And you've created an incentive to finish something much more quickly. You've created an incentive to finish faster, where before you had no incentive to finish faster. Oh, and there's another incentive 
there's another one, which is, is you've now created your own system to not do things that are out of scope. If it's just, okay, I'll spend 40 hours doing this new, I'm thinking of your software people, doing this new add-on that we weren't going to do before. In the other situation, say, mm, let's focus on getting this main thing completed, and then we'll talk about that when we get there. In a way, it can make you a much more um, efficient, productive, smart consultant. Yep. And the, and the way that you do that, because I know people are scratching their heads, the way that you do that is by focusing, when you quote the project, instead of just being told what to do in the team meeting every Monday, uh, here's what you're going to do this week. Instead of that, you define the desired outcome of the project with the client. So you're like, oh, you want to do this big project initiative? Great. I can do that for you. Uh, what are you trying to achieve? What's the, what's the desired outcome? What's the business outcome that you're looking to achieve? And through the course of the project, however long it takes, when they do, and they will, come to you with these sort of unrelated requests or these hair on fire situations where they say, um, um, oh, you know, something just happened in the market and we need you to go, you know, stop what you're doing on that and go do this instead. What I tell people to do is, is be a fierce advocate for the project. It's not about, you know, you don't want to do more work or you don't, you know, you want to push back on the client or you feel like they're being ridiculous. It's not about that. It's like, well, right now we're doing this project and I'm going to do everything in my power for it to be a success as quickly as possible. What, what does this request that you're making of me right now do to contribute to that success? And they won't be able to give you an explanation. And you say exactly what you just said, Rochelle, like, well, all right, this might be a good idea. It might not be, but um, what we'll do is put it on put in the parking lot for possible v2 once we're done here once we declared victory on this project we can look at that the backlog of stuff that came up that was unrelated in this three-month period a couple things happen there one a lot of that stuff just disappears i don't think once i've ever had somebody come back and be like oh yeah we really finally we can put that carousel on the home page or whatever they almost always fade into uh, the deep reaches of memory too deep reaches of memory where they cannot be retrieved but also if they're valid and they actually are good ideas and they really do want to do it, it gives them reason to declare victory more quickly on the initial project. But yeah, it's good enough. We're there. We're good. So let's let's say this is done. Move on to the new thing. Give us a quote for the new thing. Well, it's also collaborative working this way is that it it forces both parties to be collaborative. It's not where you're really an employee in everything but name where you're doing, you're being told what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. This, If you're just starting to work this way, it's a great way to ease into it and start you know, really learning how to do that with your clients. Absolutely. And, and it is hard to, to change how an existing client perceives you because you're asking them to view you in a new way in, in most cases. In most cases, you're viewed as an employee, <laughs> you know, in everything but name. And you are, your job is to be do what you're told, basically. And what you're asking them to do is to view you at a higher level, more like a peer, um, an outside expert who will not be told how to do their job, like a doctor. You don't tell a doctor how to do their job. Uh, it'd be more like that. So, so it is tricky. If you don't have a great relationship with the client or you don't have the right relationship with the client, it's hard to make that shift. But you can do it in some cases when, when there's a lot of mutual respect already. But it's a lot of times it's easier to get back to raising prices. A lot of times it's easier to just sunset this mm -hmm. client yep. and find new clients who you and, and start the relationship on the right foot instead of starting on the back foot and trying to pivot. 
it's it's way easier, which is, you know, we talked about clients for life on another episode. It's you want to always look at this as a continuum and you don't have to keep clients forever. You know, there are times when, and it doesn't make them a bad client or you a bad consultant, but there are times that you just need to go out and get new clients, new people, experiment with different approaches and learn because, I mean, that's what we're doing as we, as we're working through this. Nobody has all the answers. So I feel like so far we've been talking about project work, custom project work, but there's a, a range of other things that people that are probably listening to this podcast would sell. So I wanted to shift into products. So if you think about like, um, I guess the, the most producty product I sell, um, are, are like eBooks. So speaking of price, I started out selling hourly billing is nuts at $49, which is high for a book, even a physical book. Uh, not the highest of course, but for, for a, you know, text, it's not a coffee table book, you know, for like a, a text book, basically no images of any kind. And it. it's just like black te- text on a white background. Uh, you're usually looking at like, I don't know, 12 to $20, 12 to $19, something like that. And I, I purposely put it at 49 for a variety of reasons. One, I wanted to, to project a certain amount of value. I be, and I believe that it was there. I believe that it has the value. I think books are the, the like best bang for the buck going. I mean, they're incredible. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to start it. I started it high. I started at 49. But when I first launched it, I had all sorts of different coupons available for different sorts of people who I was going to use as my street team or as my essentially outsourced team of editors. And like you get 100% off if you give me feedback on the book, you know, things like that. But so for the first uh, the first couple of weeks, you could get it for free. And for the period after that, I think I started at $49. I'm pretty sure I did. And I sold it like that for a while. And I wanted to, air quotes, raise the price. So what I did was I created two tiers above the book itself that bundled in additional related resources. So uh, if I, I think from memory, I would say that it's $49 for just the book. And then it's 119 for the book plus like six hours of videos and uh, two additional short books. And uh, I think that's it. And then the top level, I don't even remember how much it costs. I think it's uh, it's around 600 for, it might be 750 for all that stuff. Plus you get a phone call with me and access to, um, a, you know, a private coaching community that I have. So, so the, the point is, I was like, huh, how can I, how can I, I wasn't going to just raise the price of the book. I could have theoretically, I didn't really experiment with raising the price of the book alone, but I felt like I was already starting kind of high for what people would expect for a book. So I said, well, I want to have, I want to offer more value to people who have the wherewithal to purchase it. So if you want to accelerate your understanding of the material and your progress and your business, you can spend a little bit more money and get that. So for certain people, it was attractive. And, and to get back to price points, the, the middle tier, the one that's more than double what the book alone costs is it sells roughly the same number of units as the book itself, which means that I make more than twice as much money from that option. Mm. If you, if you follow me. And so, there's no, there's no incremental cost to you, right? Because the, the add-ons are all done. You're not adding another person to your community or, or talking to somebody on the phone. Right. Yeah. Same cost yeah. to me. Okay. 
but it does include more value. And in fact, I think one of the I think one of the books that are is included in the whole thing. It's like a eighty page PDF is probably the most valuable thing in the whole thing. At least that's what people tell me. It's an example of a price point being like, okay, I'm selling about the same number of tier two, but I make more than double the money from it, and it's all profit. And then the tier three item doesn't sell that often. When it does, it's worth it. But uh, in terms of you know, if you looked at the revenue pie. I think it's in second place. I should I should check, but I think it's in second place. So that the $49 book, which is expensive for a book, is the lowest revenue and lowest profit version of of any of the three options. So by increasing the price of delivering more value to people and making more money for myself, and then the top tier one, the top tier one has costs associated with it, more cost. So profit-wise, that's probably not uh, it's not the greatest for me from a financial standpoint. But it's wild to consider because we were talking about cost before. So if you look at those three things, the third one, the biggest one, does have incremental costs. So you mess with the price differently than you do with the other ones. Uh, it's wild. But um, it could be, whether it's for you or somebody else, it could be the gateway to get to this next level of, of your community. So somebody pays that, your costs are higher, but then you leverage them elsewhere in your business model. And I look at it exactly like you just pointed out. So like, eh, it's not a loss leader, but frankly, it's not as profitable as the second one, which is weird because it's far more expensive. It's probably triple, probably triple the price, but it's less profit. So it's like, (laughs) I, I don't know. These are the things you consider when you're considering pricing. Do you have sort of similar stories? Have you done, have you tried pricing tiers or, you know, I know you've sold products in the past. Like how did, how's that worked out for you? Well, what's funny is when I did my first consultant brand course, you know, I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to work. I did not do a great job on testing. Let me just confess right now. But so when I had put it together with the tiers, I shopped it around to a few people that I'm probably about 10 that I respected and said, what's your feedback to this? And one of the people I really respected said, you know, the problem with this is you haven't priced, there's not a high end that's high enough that aligns with what I think of as your value. So I fiddled with the numbers and I, I wound up having like the, I think the first time I ran it, the the low end cost, because this was a pilot, so I wanted to keep the prices low, it was like 500 bucks. And then the second tier I was going to have two tiers and the second tier I think was like a thousand. And so I added a third one that was 1800 at the suggestion of this person. And every single person that bought the pilot bought the highest option. (laughs) Yes. Great sign that your prices are too low. If everybody's buying option three, your prices are way too low. Yeah. And well, there are two things. One is, is, is the price low? And then the other piece is, what do they want to buy from you? And so one of my takeaways, again, from the feedback I got from this group of 10, is that the people that are going to buy this want some of you. They want more of you than just seeing you in a video. They want you to help them at the end with their plan, which I knew that was kind of the tier two. But the tier three was more in depth. So it was more of my time. But yeah, clearly the prices were too low and they're not that low now. (laughs) Yeah. Talking about tiers is closely related to raising your prices because it's if you are currently selling something at a fixed price, like a product or a productized service, you could just raise the price. I've done that with other ones, but you can also just add tiers above it 
to see what see what happens like you know maybe people are are dying to get more of you maybe people really are happy you know maybe they're only spending 20 bucks on your book because that's the only option they have but they're not going to buy two but i do and i use this same kind of approach in custom project proposals that we talked about first where you know i would give fixed prices and i i base them on value not time materials uh, but they'll always be three uh, there are small, medium, and large. Each one includes the, the lower any ones before it so that it allows you to, since you don't know exactly what their budget is or exactly how much the thing is worth to them or what kind of risk they're sensing, what level of urgency, you kind of know all those things if you do a good job talking to them in the sales call, but you don't know them to like an exact number. But by offering three options of increasing, you know, sort of incremental options of increasing value, you tend to leave less money on the table. And it's it's so funny when people start doing this for the first time because they're used to giving hourly estimates, which are usually way too low. So they'll I'll say, okay, what would your hourly estimate be for this thing? They say, oh, it'd be about $10,000. But like, okay, uh, price your option one at say 18,000. 18,000, yeah, okay. So do that. And then option two at like, two or three times that and option three at five times that five or 10 times that. And okay, they do that. And then they, you know, frantically email me back. They checked option three, like, <laughs> you know, they're like, they can't believe it. And I'm like, yeah, cause your prices yeah. are way too low, Yeah, you know, and they have no, I, they're just not familiar with the client psychology they, even though they could be working with clients for 10 years on an hourly basis, they're not familiar with the psychology on the other side of the table. So when they finally offer this thing, it's like super refreshing to a buyer who's used to the the terror of paying people by the hour because mm-hmm. it's terrifying from the buyer's perspective. But the point is options, options are a really, really good way to raise your prices, air quotes, by offering more, you know, bundled value, hopefully with zero incremental cost at higher price points and allows people to you know, engage with you at a higher level and get more, more quickly if they can afford it. Well, it'll, great. It, it gives you a line of sight to that value conversation, because if, if you're saying 18,000, oh, I can't charge that much less, you know, five or 10 times that. But if you start to really link what you're doing to the value to the client and to the organization, then all of a sudden it, at least this is has always been true for me. It's like there's a that's a confidence boost to me. It's like yes, not only am I really good at this, I am the best at doing this, and I'm the one that has figured this out for them, and I'm going to be the hero, you know. And that's kind of what we do as as consultants. I think is we we want to ride in on the horse and we want to do the best possible job we can for the client, and by aligning it with value, the, just the discussion with that value, it 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 gives you line of sight to how to get there. Yep. Yeah. It helps you start thinking about the benefits that you're providing instead of the deliverables that you're delivering. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a giant, giant mind shift. It takes people like, I mean, I can still remember when I could not understand the sentence that I just said, like I could not understand it. What do you mean inputs, inputs versus output? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> But once you finally, once that finally clicks for you, it's like, oh man, how did anybody ever give me any money before? Like all I was talking about was myself and what I'm going to do. And then you were going to owe me for that stuff I did. And, you know, it's not, and it's left to them to connect the dots from what 
your craft is and what you do to like any potential positive outcome for the business. So there's one other thing we've talked, we've talked about a couple of different things here. There's a, there's one that I think is different than the others where you've got a potentially have a, like a productized service. I, I don't know why I tend to do this with productized services where I want to sell a service without having to do a ton of marketing and sales. I don't want to have a phone call with every potential buyer and, you know, vet them like crazy. I just want to have this service that I do. Yeah, right. It's, it's, I want something that's repeatable. It's widely applicable to people in my audience and I can deliver it more or less the exact same way every time based on standard operating procedures and boilerplate that I customize lightly for given individuals. And, and there's one I was doing for a long time uh, that I called road mapping. And I would do roadmaps for people. I think I did the first couple, knowing that I was pricing it very low, just sort of like beta customers. I think the first ones were like $2.99, and I immediately sold three of them. And I was like, okay, I knew that was too low, but I didn't think I was going to sell three of them in like one day. Uh, so then I, I executed the the roadmap. It was like, uh, takes about a week of you know, all told, not a week of hours, but it takes about... Maybe, maybe it took me three hours across a week. And, you know, so that's not great effective hourly rate. It wasn't great profit, but I just wanted to test it and see if it would work. Sure enough, uh, it did. And then I was like, okay. And then I raised it to, say, six ninety nine or something like that. And, you know, the way the price points work, sales went. I did not sell three in one day, but I only needed to sell one to essentially do you know so i'm doing half the work and i can sell half as many and you know make more basically they were selling fine at that point but uh the costs i didn't like the way you know, whatever it doesn't matter i wanted to raise the price again so i kept raising the price kept raising the price kept raising the price and then the sweet spot ended up being about 1300 where if i went much above 1300 just crickets nobody you know the value proposition was was not evident it wasn't clear or the people that were interested in this were in a particular place where they, where that was about the tipping point for what they perceived the value to be. Um, but you can, you can see when it happens. Like, so imagine you starting, start off selling something at around $300 and within a couple of months, you know, every, every time I sold one, I would increase the price significantly. So it was like significant increase, significant increase, significant increase. Then I got up to, I think I was selling it at 1800 for a while and like nobody bought it so i was like okay this is too high and then i backed it back to 1295 and started selling them again i'm like all right you know this is the sweet spot for for this sales page and this value proposition and this audience that i have access to this is the price this is the most i can charge for it since my costs are essentially static you know i don't get a bulk discount <laughs> um on my cost my costs were essentially static that was the most i could charge for that particular thing but what you just described to me, I, the visual coming to mind was somebody playing the piano. You're going up a little higher and maybe you're coming down a little bit. I think that a lot of people don't tinker with prices. And I think we should do more of that. As I was listening to you, I was thinking how instructive it was to you about what the market, your market, not the market, what your market will bear for that particular product, a productized service. And I'll bet you've built that into the other scenarios you've created. Yeah, I tinker with price all the time, constantly. Uh, that's, it's a great point. I think a lot of people want to pick a price, they sort of set it and forget it. And for, like years will go by. Mm -hmm. And I, I, not me, I mess with them. <laughs> I, it, for me, it's a, it's a powerful signal. And 
it keeps people from sitting on the fence, I think. Almost never do I dial the prices down. It's almost always in the upward direction and significantly upward. So that creates a certain pressure, like, you know, get it now because this is the cheapest it's ever going to be. It's really hard to drop your prices because then you have people who've spent more. And it, the last thing you want to do is like buying a, a dress, you know, at the store. And then you come back a week later or two weeks later and it's 50% off. You feel like a fool. Yeah. Yeah. I like to run, you know, Black Friday this year, I ran like a, a sale and I told people for days beforehand not to buy anything from me until that week because of the exact point. Like I didn't want to have a bunch of people being like, oh man, I just bought this yesterday and now it's 30% off or whatever. In general, I'm kind of against the idea of like sales, like just a straight up sale, like, like Target would do or something. I think it's Seth Godin that says having a sale is the ref, the last refuge of the bad marketer. It's like you're, you're trying to create excitement, but it's, it's a very lazy way to do it. It, it's much, I, I think it, it takes a lot more energy, but I think it's better to do something special. Uh, it's not special. It's just like, it, it's, it's not special anymore. Maybe it was at one time that a sale, a sale, what's that? I've never heard of that. What's a sale? What does that word mm-hmm. even mean? Oh, they're, wait, their prices are low today only? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> never heard of that. And now it's like so eye-rollingly common that, um, you know, like, <laughs> I won't even bring up Walmart like this everyday low prices, but then we have rollbacks. We don't have sales. Okay. So the idea of the idea of doing that is actually kind of lazy. Um, I'm not sure this is sort of off topic, but in general, what I would like to do is, is more what I described earlier about bundling higher tier things, but you could do it for a short time. Like, um, Oh, you know, for, for black Friday this year, I'm releasing a hundred signed copies of my book. If anybody's interested in that, it's the only place to get signed copies of the book. Uh, you know, it's the only, the only hundred physical copies I even have. I printed them out as galleys. They're test copies. I signed all hundred of them. If you want to buy one of those, it'll be 250 bucks. And, you know, and that's instead of a sale, create an event, do something that's, that's interesting and fun and something people talk about, um, unique opportunity. That's true. You know, real scarcity, not scarcity. fake scarcity. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally agree. So what different techniques we've talked about for raising your prices. One is trying to transition, say, like an hourly client into a fixed price client for a project basis instead of this ongoing employee thing. Another thing we talked about was adding higher value bundles on top of some sort of static product that you make to give people who do feel like they're getting a lot of value out of you a way to to actually just pay you more and also benefit from that. And for things that you don't want to have bundled or tiered together or something like that, you can just try raising the price and, and until the point where sales drop off this is what Paul said, keep raising it to the point where sales drop off and then go back one <laughs> and then you're good. <laughs> it's like focusing a pair of binoculars. You're like back and forth, back and forth until it comes into sharp focus. I keep coming back to this idea that I think as a profession, we really should experiment a lot more with prices and that we shouldn't be afraid to do it in some cases. And I think in the other case, it should just be that part of business as usual. You know, when I think about creating strategic plans for businesses, I think looking at pricing and experimenting with pricing should be part of that plan. Oh, yeah. Like Ron Baker, who's a a big thought leader in the pricing space, just sort of generally not consulting necessarily. But uh, he, he believes that there should be a pricing department in firms, like an entire department that is specifically 
dedicated to pricing and and there are lots he's got lots of good reasons for that i would never argue with him on anything because he's basically <laughs> right about everything if anything he's a little idealistic uh, but he is right in theory so i i think it's uh i mean think about it we're swimming in price we're we're constantly constantly at least in the u.s you're never not thinking about prices it basically you know all day long you're considering some price for something or you're paying some amount of money for something it's like it's, i mean maybe it's a gross consumer culture but i mean i've probably bought 10 things already today and it's it's like noon it's wild so yeah pricing is a big deal it isn't what it used to be i mean it used to be prices is, is a number and here you you pay that and you get your goods or your services. And now there's all kinds of terms with that and tiers and what you bucket with it and what you don't. It, it is, it, it's, it's complex, but it can be simple if we just keep experimenting. I'm, I'm inspired. I'm going to go experiment with pricing when we're done with this podcast today. Uh-oh, better go buy Rochelle's stuff right now because it's about to go up. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Cool. All right. Uh, that's a, probably a good place to leave it. So that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.